now for our first message. Reginald. Matthew, you scared me there for a minute. I thought you were going to leave me speechless. Uh, I have to do something this time that I don't normally do, and that is I'm, I'm going to have to pull uh, a Ron Wilhoyt on us. You know, everyone knows what a Ron Wilhoyt is? It's where you write one message, divide it up in about three or four parts, and deliver it in subsequent uh, opportunities. <laughs> All right. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, when I gave Sherry my title about four or five weeks ago, this was just a regular size reg uh, split sermon. But as the uh, weeks went on and I studied more and more, this began to grow like one of those wads of overdone steak Mr. Gregory liked so much. The more you chewed it, the, long, the bigger and bigger and bigger it got. I knew that when I reached page eight, I was in trouble. And when I reached page 12, it was time to do a Ron Wilhoy. So, I'm going to have to split this one into two parts, if you will. All right, so. In Luke 18, 8, Jesus asked the question, Yet when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Now, this is no trivial question. For ever since his, quote, uh, his creation, Satan has been engaged in an insidious campaign of doubt to undermine God's authority, to usurp his power, and to destroy his most precious creation, us. I must give the devil his due. It is a brilliant strategy. It's filled with plots and subplots, lies and deceits, false images and counterfeits, and what Matthew Steele so astutely recognized as pre-corruption. Doubt is an attack on faith. For Satan knows that faith is essential for God to do any great work. Even Jesus himself lost some of his effectiveness in the presence of unbelief. Turn with me to Mark um, 6, verses 4 through 6. Actually, I can just read off the back. Here, can I? All right, so Mark four, 6, verses 4 through 6. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his native place, among his own kin and in his own house. And he could do no great work of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick ones and healed them. And he marveled because of the unbelief. And he went around the villages in a circuit teaching. That's all he could do. Unbelief is like a clamp that puts the stop on any kind of great power that we can have, even from Christ. Turn likewise to, to the apostles the, who were exasperated in the presence of unbelief. Matthew 17, verses 19 through 21. The disciples came to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move. And nothing shall be impossible for you. However, this kind, it goes out except by prayer, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Further, do not underestimate the power of our adversary. For remember, this was the anointed cherub that covereth, as in Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. He had enough influence 
to persuade a third of the angels, a third of the angelic host, to doubt and abandon God. How powerful, how persuasive you have to be to persuade these great intelligent beings to abandon the creator of the universe. But to abandon God and to follow him into a futile rebellion before the first human being ever breathed his first breath. Now, if the angels were susceptible to his subterfuge, and if Jesus and the apostles could do no mighty work because of unbelief, how much more vulnerable are we to these attacks on our faith from doubt? Rather, let us, like, uh, let us heed Paul's warning in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of the world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Further, Satan, our adversary, is both patient and tireless in his efforts to deceive us, willing to wait centuries, millennia if necessary, just to see the fruition of his labor. Today, you know, I kind of fear that I may be painting myself with a target as I expose one of his principal strategies to undermine our faith. This is the methodology of doubt. The methodology of doubt. It is a multifaceted attack leveled against three principal targets. The divine dyad of God and Jesus, our human community and society, and our individual psyches. I'm sure I won't be able to get to the last one today, but I will maybe be able to get to the first two. Okay. Before we can fully understand the subtleties of uh, Satan's attack, we must first understand what faith is and how it is necessary for effectiveness. Now, we all know the King James Version, uh, the standard definition from Hebrews 1, uh, 11, 1, right? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of seen, things seen. But what I'd like to do here is I'd like to read from the Amplified Version, this, uh, Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Reason for it, it's got a lot of extra stuff and it helps us get a better grasp on what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance, the confirmation, and the title deed of the things that we hope for being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality, faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. For by faith, trust, and the holy fervor born of faith, the men of old had divine testimony born to them and obtained a good report. By faith we understand that the worlds during the successive ages were framed, fashioned, put in order, and equipped for their intended purposes by the word of God, so that what we see was not made out of things which are invisible. Do you realize that is atomic theory? What they just described here is the atomic theory that Dalton came up with centuries later. Some people regard faith as identical with belief, but it is much more than belief. Faith is acting, acting on the knowledge of unseen things based upon the evidence of what we know. Since it is an action, it necessitates good works. Turn to James 2, verses 14 to 18. It tells us, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and hath not good works? Can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be ye warm and fulfilled, notwithstanding you do not, uh, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Even so, if it hath not works, sorry, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Target one, doubting the divine dyad. The first uh, attack that Satan wages against faith is to undermine God and or Jesus. This methodology of doubt is in itself a three-pronged attack. First, he tries to make us doubt the existence of God. Then he tries to make us doubt the identity of God. Then he tries to make us doubt the integrity of God. It's a three-pronged attack. First, he often appeals to intellectual vanity by making us question the existence of God or the benevolence of his personality. Worldly philosophies, materialism, evolution, some of the major tools, a weapon that is in his arsenal. This kind of doubt portrays God as mm, a convenient fallback explanation for things that we can't explain scientifically. It raises science and empiricism up as the standard by which all other things are measured. Everything else is just considered superstition, or as I call it, stupid decisions. Thereby poisoning the well against the truth of God. Yet a little bit of honest observation, a rational mind, and the courage to question the false sciences that permeate academia is all that it takes to logically arrive at the conclusion that a creator, designer must exist. The arguments for intelligent design that we have seen here in this church so many times now make it very thoroughly convincing. But let's read what the psalmist said. Psalm 19, uh, 1, just the last part of this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, we know this one. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Psalm 111, verses 2 to 10. The works of the Lord are great, sought out by all of them that have pleasure in therein. His works are honorable and glorious and righteous, and this endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful world works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given meat unto them that fear him, and he will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works, and he, that he may give them the heritage to give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity, that's another word for truthfulness, are truth and judgment, and all his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and forever. They are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. And praise, praise endureth forever. It is enough to look at the heavens. The very heavens declare the glory of God. We, as human beings, are a testament to the creative handiwork of God. Where else are you going to find a DNA structure so compactly filled with information? 
And information requires an intelligence to produce information. You can't get information without an intelligence behind it. And DNA is the most compactly packed um, arrangement of information in the entire universe. No, this universe is so finely tuned and we are so ideally placed within it that the existence of a creator God is inescapable for any rational mind. So, as Psalms 14 uh, verses 1 and 2 tells us, only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none good that, that none that doeth good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon his children to see if any of them did understand and did seek God. Indeed, as in James 2, 19 declares, So, thou believest there is one God? Thou dost well. The devils also believe and tremble. So, belief in God. Just knowing that there is God is not enough. Even the devils know there's a God. They recognize that. But the attack does not stop there. It does not stop at questioning the existence. For logic and a rational mind, an honest observation, all we need get to the existence of a creator God. But logic alone will not take us to which creator God. Human cultures are resplendent with creation myths. Okay, The abundance of such myth is a methodology of doubt in and of itself that calls God's identity into question. What makes this Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true creator God, instead of, say, Allah, or Zoroaster, or Brahman, Osiris, Ju Jupiter, Zeus, Saturn, Cronus, Atman, Gaia, the Native American Great Spirit, or, or the other countless human objects of worship, Likewise, there are many savior figures scattered throughout human cultures. What makes Jesus of Nazareth the one true way by which all men can be saved? What makes him the only name that this can happen? After all, the devil has told the same story over and over and over again. He has told it in various cultures. Nimrod, Mithras, Gilgamesh, Osiris, Prometheus, Beowulf, Krishna. The list goes on and on. How many times do we have these savior myths retold to us over and over again? Many cultures recount the story of a savior deliverer who sacrifices himself for the good of mankind and becomes resurrected to life after such an altruistic sacrifice and then undergoes some kind of transformation and experiences an ascension into heaven. So what makes Jesus special? Do you see how insidious this is? Do you see what Satan has done with, as Matthew called it, pre-corruption? I like that term, Matt. I really do. It's so perfect. Do you, it, God's plan for mankind has been public from creation. Even public through Satan. He knew what God's plan was. It's no secret. It's written in the Bible. Any fool could figure it out if they just take the time to do so. So Satan knew what God's plan for mankind is. He hates it, but he knew it. So what happens? I hope we're not so vain to think that if we can figure it out, that Satan can't. After all, these are angels we're talking about. 
much, much faster intelligence than we have. Herein lies the evil genius. Satan knows God's plan for humankind. He hates it and he undermines it by creating the mythologies prior to Jesus, hence Matthew's term, so that the Jesus story then looks like a counterfeit. The Jesus story looks like the counterfeit, or at the very least, just one more case of the hero of a thousand faces, as Joseph Campbell calls it. He's Joseph Campbell, by the way, is identified in the hero of a thousand faces and um, several other of his books have identified this same uh, pattern, this same sequence. It's called the mask of God throughout the, all of human culture. The story of Mithras in particular allegedly so closely parallels the story of Jesus that it is truly a diabolical, diabolical counterfeit. It's set just 400 years or so just before Jesus, so it's fresh in their minds when Jesus shows up on the scene. So guess what happens? The Jesus story, Jesus gets thrown out with the bathwater. It's just one more counterfeit. You see, neither logic, nor history, nor archaeology, or any other scientific method can lead us to Christ. Here we step out on faith alone. And if Satan can make us doubt the authenticity of Christ, the authenticity of Jesus, he has won a battle. Not the battle, but a battle. And the seeds of doubt, they're scattered everywhere. Even on such respectable shows as Nova. In fact, the impetus for me coming up with this whole message in the first place was a Nova special that purported to reveal the true Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, it was very well done. Oh yeah, it was slick. Coherently sequenced, persuasive interviews, all the elements needed to call into question the authenticity of Jesus and to instill doubt. I'm sure it persuaded many. I'm sure it persuaded many. The third prong in the attack against God is this. Attack on his integrity. To make us question whether God really means what he says. Whether he's reliable. This is the attack on God that Satan has to use on those of us who are already convinced of his existence. Who already know who he is. If we already know or are confident of his existence and already know who he is, this is the only attack he can use to attack God. He tries to make us doubt God's character, to doubt his name. And he's been at it from the very beginning of human creation. Go back and consider Eve. You know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's look at it more closely now with, with this perspective. Consider Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast in the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the tree, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be like gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, 
and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Then she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. Notice Adam is not off somewhere in the distant place and Adam and Eve takes the fruit too. He is with her when she plucks the fruit. And he did eat. Satan offered Eve an alternative explanation to God's motive. To God's motive. Effectively calling God a liar and calling into question the integrity of God's commandment. She evaluated his argument and examined the tree. She doubted the integrity of God as a benevolent parent. Now I've got to ask, how many other biblical giants may have, even for a split second, doubted God's word, his promise, or his commandment? I can just hear the taunts. Hey, Noah, is it raining yet? How, how much faith is necessary to keep on building this big old boat for 120 years when it doesn't rain? Think there might not be some doubt that creeps in there somewhere? Fortunately, Noah could work through the doubt. What would doubt have done to Job? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or to Abraham. So Abram, you say she's your sister, huh? Or, but Lord, what if there be ten good men in Sodom? Or, happy birthday, Abram. Any pitter-patter around the uh, house yet? Ninety-nine birthdays gone by already, old man. Or Moses. But I am slow of speech, Lord. Send Aaron instead. Or, this is such a great number of people to lead. Or David. Five giants, five stones. Or Elisha. A floating axe head, you say. Or in Babylon. Now, just how hot is that furnace? A whole den of lions? Or Joseph, husband-to-be of Mary. Sure, she's a virgin. <laughs> wink, wink. And today, do we doubt God when we are faced with overwhelming difficulties? An apparently unanswered prayer. Certainly, we have the historical record to bolster our faith. But it takes faith to believe that the record is truthful. And not just some fabricated story to promote an agenda. Corroborating evidence from diverse sources helps to strengthen our faith. But just as easily, apparently conflicting evidence can make us doubt. And doubt is anathema to faith. I have to stop there. I'll pick up next time with the human society and our human psyches.